Today is August 21st, 2016. The title of today's message is Stand Firm. Stand Firm. Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 22. It says this. Consider therefore the kindness and the sternness of God. Everybody say that with me. Say kindness Kindness. and sternness. Don't we like to take one or the other? Don't we have theologies based around whether God is kind or whether he's stern? I think that as human beings we're drawn to one or the other, and yet God says he is both. Consider therefore the kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. There is a provision for his kindness that you continue to walk in it. There are many churches today, there are many lines of theology that says it doesn't matter. You don't need to continue to walk in it because once you've made it in, then everything else is good. We don't have time today, but we would be glad as a pastoral staff. There are many in this room who can sit down with anyone that has a question about the idea of us having to continue on in His kindness to receive that said kindness. We would be glad to sit down and with you and show you an overwhelming amount of Scripture that will show you that we must continue in His kindness to receive it. Look what it says in the next sentence. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they did not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. There is hope for those both who are lost and a warning for those of us who have already been found. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Amen. Let's, let's, let's look at a few Bible characters. How is it that someone can be anointed? How is it that someone can be extremely capable, can do amazing things that are clearly from the Lord, and yet have difficulties that go on in their life that derail them at some point? Today is as much about a cautionary tale as it is we're going to end with encouragement from the Lord. Amen? Amen. But we're going to look at people who were anointed, who spoke rightly, who acted rightly, and yet because of unbelief in their own heart, because of other things that they never rooted out of their own life, they ended their life in disgrace and far from God. Let's turn to Numbers chapter 22. Numbers chapter 22. Say, there when you are there. The first Bible story that we want to look at, the first Bible personality that we want to look at is Balaam. Everybody say Balaam. Balaam. Let's start in verse 1 of chapter 22. Is everybody there? It says, Then the Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab, and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites and Moab, and Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. The Moabites said to the elders of Midian, This horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, 
son of Beor, who was at Pethor, near the river, in, the nat- in his native land. Balak said, okay, don't get confused, there's a Balak, who's the king of Moab, and Balaam. A people has come out of Egypt, they cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people. We don't think about this much in our, in our land, but when you travel abroad, we were in Africa uh, a few months ago. We were in the southeastern regions of Africa. And it was not uncommon for there to be local witch doctors. As a matter of fact, the place that we went was a local training ground for witch doctors. For shaman. For, there's a lot of different terms for these people. And it was not uncommon for you to go pay some witch doctor to put a curse on those that you... If, if they mistreated you in a business deal. You can get them back in a lot of different ways. And one was you could pay a witch doctor to put a curse on them. So that someone in their household would get sick. So that things that they had would be destroyed. One of the sessions that we had with pastors there in Mozambique, Africa, was to teach them about curses. What the Bible has to say about curses and blessings. It's not common in in our area as much, but these things still occur to this day. Now come and put a curse on these people because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the country. For I know that those you bless are blessed, and those you curse are cursed. Interesting. Look at verse 12. So this is the scenario. This is the groundwork, the framework, for Balaam being invited into this situation. The king of Moab wants to curse God's people. This is the plan so that perhaps he can win. With his own strength and the curse enacted, perhaps he can defeat God's people. Look at verse 12. But God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on those people because they are blessed. When God blesses something, there is no curse that can stand against it. Look at verse 18. But Balaam answered them, even if Balak gave me his palace filled with silver and gold, I could not do anything great or small to go beyond the command of the Lord my God. This is Balaam. He is standing against and saying, I can't curse these people if God doesn't tell me to. I can only bless them. You can give me all you got, king. You can give me a palace full of silver and gold. I can't do anything unless God gives it to me. Unless God allows me to say something and he's already told me I'm not allowed to curse them. Skip down to verse 34. I'm trying to get this story in a very few pinpointed verses here. Because many of you are familiar with this story. Verse 34, Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. I did not realize you were standing in the road. This is as Balaam's donkey, right? We know that story that there's an angel. The donkey sees, ba- sees the angel and starts to turn to the left and the right. Balaam takes and beats the donkey. Come on, man. What are you doing, you stupid donkey? And then finally there's a, there's a pathway that's too small and you couldn't go to the right or to the left. Balaam beats the donkey and then what happens? The donkey starts to speak. Wow. (laughs) The donkey starts speaking to him. Hey, man, have I ever done this to you before? No, donkey, you haven't done this before. Becomes Shrek right in the middle of everything, right? (laughs) Donkey. What's going on, donkey? The donkey just starts talking to him, and apparently he's okay with this. (laughs) Because he just talks back. Huh, okay. Well, that's true. You haven't ever done this before, donkey. 
uh, there's an angel standing there, dude. Whoa. This is Balaam's response to this. Balaam said to the angel, Lord, I have sinned. I did not realize you were standing there in the road opposed to me. It's sad when a, when a donkey can tell things before we can. I, I didn't even realize the Lord was standing there. I didn't know this was anything to do with the Lord. I just thought it was a donkey being a donkey. <laughs> now, if you are displeased, I will go back. Verse 35, the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with these men but speak only what I tell you. So Balaam went with the princess. Turn to chapter 23. Chapter 23. There are multiple oracles. If you see in your Bible, you might see chapters as we're going through some of these uh, titles, as we're going through some of these chapters. This is actually Balaam's second oracle. And what he does, what Balaam does through this, is he gives some of the most beautiful pictures of the kingdom of of Israel. He gives some of the most insightful prophecies up to this point in the Bible. He gives insight that no other person had had up until this point. For instance, in chapter 23, verse 21, no misfortune is seen in Jacob, no misery observed in Israel. The Lord, their God is with them. The shout of the King is among them. God brought them out of Egypt. They have the strength of a wild ox. There is no sorcery against Jacob, no divination against Israel. It will now be said of Jacob and Israel, see what God has done. This is a, this is a, a, a prophet for hire. A prophet for profit. He's saying that he is getting paid to curse these people. And you know what he's doing? He's blessing them because he can't help it. Turn to chapter 24. Verse 1. Now, when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not resort to sorcery as at other times, but turned his face toward the desert. When Balaam looked out and saw Israel encamped tribe by tribe, the Spirit of God came upon him. Everybody say the Spirit of God. It was the honest to goodness Spirit of God that came upon him. He saw God's people and God came upon him. And you know what he does? He gives an incredible, another prophecy, an oracle. How beautiful are your tents, O Jacob. He is reflecting God's very heart about his people. Turn to chapter 31. Numbers chapter 31. We're going to start in verse 7. It says that they fought against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every man. Among their victims were Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam, son of Beor, with a sword. Look down in verse 16. Verse 15. Have you allowed all the women to live, he asked them. They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice. So you get Balaam and he's prophesying these incredible things. He is a for-prophet, prophet. And what you get is Balaam also gave advice and were the means of turning the Israelites away from the Lord and what happened at Peor so that a plague struck the Lord's people. While he's giving instructions and the word from the Lord, you know what else he's doing? He's showing Balak how to destroy God's people. He's pronouncing a blessing out of one side of his mouth and he's perverting God's people in another 
He's saying what God has told him to say, and he's also instructing the people on how to sin more effectively. This is Balaam's error. We're going to just uh, quickly read through another few verses. Turn to Joshua chapter 13. By the way, his name is directly mentioned in the law, the prophets, the writings, and in the Newer Testament of the epistles and Revelation. You get Balaam that threads all the way through the entire Bible. Because it was such a disparity between the righteousness of which he spoke and that he heard from the Lord and the despicable acts that he carried out seemingly simultaneously. Uh, Joshua chapter 13 and verse 22. Joshua 13, 22. It says, In addition to those slain in battle, the Israelites had put to the sword Balaam, son of Beor. Now this is a little bit different than what it said earlier. Joshua's recapping. He says, who practiced divination? Right? Do you remember where he realized that the Lord was with with him? So he said, I'm not going to go and practice divination again. I'm going to actually turn my face to what the Lord is doing. Okay, let's turn to Jude. Now in the New Testament, almost to the end. Jude. It's just one chapter. So we're going to look at Jude verse 11. You can turn to Revelation and back up a page and you'll be there. Jude, verse 11. Say there when you're there. It says, Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. When you look back on a situation, some things can come into clarity at times. You're in the middle of it, so you describe it one way. And then you get a little ways past it and you realize, okay, maybe this was more about one thing than another. I thought it one way when I was there. And now looking back, I have to go, I'm going to give it a different type of summary. Jude, the second to last book in our canon, is looking back on the history of Israel up until this moment. And he's giving a recap and including three examples. The way of Cain, prophet into Balaam's error, Destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Wow. Historically speaking, these are three of the most egregious sins that had happened that typified every other type of sin. Let me give you the meta category here so that a lot of things fall under this. And one of those categories is what Balaam did. These men are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Remember in 1 Corinthians 5, we're not supposed to eat with those that have been expelled? Do you realize that as believers, one of the things that we have to give that is vital is our fellowship and our restoration to people around us? When it says in Acts 2, that they, what did they do? They were there together. They were following the, disciples, the apostles' teaching and they were breaking bread together. That fellowship is a vital thing. If you think that you can do this walk without those around you, you do not understand a key concept that is throughout Scripture. If you think that your walk with the Lord is so personal that you don't need anyone else, 
What you tell me is that you don't want the accountability of being around other people. Because God has designed us. It is not good that man is alone. God is trying to keep you in community. He's put you in community. He has made us as social creatures for a reason. It's because we need it. Blind spots. What are blind spots? They're the things that you can't see. Problem with the blind spot is you're the one that has it. Nobody else around you has it. Ever, ever heard someone say, oh, I've never done that. And everybody else in the room is like, bruh, you do that all the time. As a matter of fact, I think that kind of defines you. And they've either been deceived or there's a, there's a blind spot that's there. I don't, I don't get it. I don't see where I make a mistake. I, I can't always see it. But when I do, what do I do with that? These men are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves, they are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. Everybody say twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame, wandering stars from whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. These are some, this, do you get the imagery here? Clouds without rain. They look like they're one thing, but they're really not. They look like they have an image and they can sit down and talk with you and they don't appear to have a problem, but there's a drastic problem that's going on. Turn to 2 Peter, back a few pages. 2 Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 13. They will be paid back with harm for the harm that they have done. By the way, the title of this chapter in my Bible is False Teachers and Their Destruction. Okay? They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. Well, there's an interesting word. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasure while they feast with you. Wait a minute. There seems to be a running theme here, by the way. This fellowship, this eating with you, and their despicable behavior. The Word of God is trying to bring this into, into, a light, into light for us today. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed, an accursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. He loved it. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoings by a donkey. Donkey. A beast without speech who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Let's start in verse 12. Revelation 2, 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live. <laughs> rut row. I know where you live. In other words, I know exactly where you are. I have a, I have a pinpointed exactly where you, where you are. Where Satan has his throne. 
Yet you, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Brother, I, I, would, I would serve the Lord better, but you just don't understand the context of my environment. You don't understand my culture. Apparently, Jesus understood their culture very well. I know exactly where you live. I know what goes on in your neck of the woods. But they've remained true to it. They were staying true to the name of the Lord. Verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. Now see, this is not a phrase that you found earlier, right? Well, he did these things... And then you find out in Numbers 31 that he was also teaching some of the women to be improper to lead the nation astray. You, you, find, you start finding out little nuggets. He was one who practiced divination. You know what you find out here in Revelation from Jesus Christ himself who is speaking? He taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. While he was prophesying. While he was speaking. Only what the Lord had given him in those instances. This is an amazing thing. Let's take a look at another. Bible personality. Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 9. Balaam is our example. From the law. Saul is going to be our example from the prophets. 1 Samuel chapter 9. I'm trying to catch up here, sorry. 1 Samuel chapter 9. Let's start in verse 1. This is about King Saul. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing whose name was Kish, son of Abel, the son of Zoror. <laughs> Sorry, easy for me to say, right? The son of Bacharath, the son of Aphia of Benjamin. He had a son named Saul. Everybody say Saul. Saul. An impressive young man without equal among the Israelites. A head taller than any of the others. Look in verse 15 of the same chapter. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him leader over my people Israel. He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked upon my people, for their cry has reached me. God has ordained that Saul be king. Turn to chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? Look in verse 9. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. You know what it says in other translations? God gave him another heart. He gave him a new heart. God transformed Saul from whatever he was before, and put his spirit upon him and changed his heart. Verse 10, when they arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The spirit of God came upon him in power and he joined in their prophesying. When all those who had formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, 
What is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul among the prophets? A man who lived there answered, And who is their father? So it became a saying, Is Saul among the prophets? This was such a dramatic change, it became a phrase that everyone used around. They just threw it around. (laughs) Oh, yeah, you know, Saul a prophet. It got into the lexicon of the culture there because it was such a dramatic change. Incredible. Became a normal saying for people to go, well, (laughs) what's going on here? Look in chapter 13. I'm just going to talk through a few of these to move us on to where we need to be. Do you know that Saul reigned for 42 years? 42 years. I am not quite yet 42 years old. So if Saul would have been born, uh, started ruling on my birthday, he would still be ruling. 42 years. And over the course of time, he went from this anointed man, Saul among the prophets, who is prophesying, who had a changed heart, who the Spirit of God came upon. And we start seeing that over the course of time, he derailed himself. In chapter 13, there's a time that he could not wait for the man of God and to offer a sacrifice. He got nervous. He saw his troops getting fearful. And so what he did was he offered something on the sacrifice at the altar that was not his to offer. I believe that there was a word that came forth today, several, that address this exact thing. Let's look in verse 11. What have you done? Asked Samuel. Saul replied, well, when I saw the men, that they were scattering and that you did not come at the set time. Uh, By the way, be careful who you start accusing. Saul is blaming his sin on Samuel, is he not? Well, I mean, these are part of the factors, right? This, all this is going on, and you, you didn't show up at the right time. Hold up. No matter what our current culture is trying to teach us, you are responsible for your own actions. You are responsible for your sin. There is not another man, woman, child, entity in the heavenlies that can cause you to sin. You sin because you choose to sin, period. You're either a slave to sin or you're choosing to do it, but either way, it is your responsibility. Do not buy into our modern culture that says it's always somebody else's fault. If only I had a better circumstance, if only I had a better past, then I wouldn't have to sin as much as I do. If that is the case, then you are deceived to the highest level. The Word of God is not working in you if that is honestly your thoughts. Look at what Saul did. I saw the men scattering, and you did not come at the set time. And that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. I thought, everybody say, I thought. thought. Uh, Your thoughts are not always right. I think my thoughts are always right, by the way. If you ask me, I like my thoughts because I thought them. I get rather enamored with my own thoughts sometimes. You know what we're trying to learn how to do as a church? You know what our whole goal this year has been saying? Here is the standard of God's word. I will change what I think to rise up to be what his standard is. I will only do what he tells me to do. I will be completely dependent upon him. I thought, now that the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer 
the burnt offering. Be careful what you feel compelled to do. Your compulsions do not influence me. You should take your compulsions and take them to the Lord and see if that's his desire or not. If he compels you, then by all means, do it. But there's a difference between your compulsions and his instructions. Verse 13, you have acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. He is so arrogant here that God says, look, I was looking to have you be the one and the house of Saul be the one that has a line that carries on. But you know what? Not anymore. Look in chapter 15. This is when he is instructed to decimate the Amalekites. God was going to give him the upper hand. He was going to crush his enemies for all time. He comes around. Samuel gets there and he's like, hey, what, what is this I'm hearing? You're supposed to destroy everything and everybody and everything. Verse 20 of chapter 15. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission. The Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. If you completely destroyed them, how are you bringing back anything? The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does, not, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. You know what happens after this, ladies and gentlemen? Take a look up here for a second. He weeps. He finally falls on his knees and says, but I, now I have sinned. You know why he finally gets to the point where he said he sinned? Because he's busted in every way possible. Yes. Do not get guilt confused with repentance. I feel guilty. I feel so bad about what I've done. Will you help alleviate my guilt for me? No, I will not. That is not my job. You need to repent before the Lord. Because a repentance produces different actions. Guilt makes you feel bad for a little while until those emotions wear off and then you go right back to the same vomit that you've been playing in. There is fruit that is in keeping with repentance. Do not in your own life get confused with your guilty conscience. With the feeling of guilt, I messed up, I feel so bad, I treated Justin bad, and now I feel bad about it. Uh, Justin, will you, will you forgive me? Hey, hey, I feel really bad. You have to have repentance. There's a huge difference in the kingdom. Saul comes and is like, hey, I feel really bad about it. And look at what, look at what um, Verse 27, as Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught a hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Would you hold your place there? Let's do one more verse. Let's take a look at chapter 28 in the same book. There. 
Saul is so messed up that by the end of his life, he is going to a witch to get counsel from. Guys, we're flipping through chapters, right? In chapter 9, he's, anoint, he's chosen king. In chapter 10, he's anointed as king. His heart changes. He's prophesying. By chapter 13, he's already losing the kingdom. By chapter 15, God is stripping it from him. And by chapter 28, and by the way, there's a few other stories in there. The next thing that we see from Saul, and he's consulting a witch, and God says, now this is going to require your very life. I'm going to take away your progenitory. You were going to be king overall. Now I'm taking it away from you right this minute. Now I'm going to require your life from you. This progression that's there. Turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 and verse 22. Just as I said, you cannot confuse guilt with actual repentance. Those are two very different things. You cannot also not confuse God's mercy with his approval upon you. Just because he has mercy on you doesn't mean that he's approving of you. It just means he's given you a chance to get it right. You know when Adam and Eve were in the garden, why were they not allowed to eat of the fruit? The day that you eat of this fruit, what happens? You will surely die. Did they actually die that day? Yes and no. They did not die physically in that moment. Sometimes when we see God's clear word and we go, I can do this and I can sin. And you know what happens? I'm still alive. Amen. I didn't die on the spot. Okay, great. If you're not careful, you keep going along and you allow God's mercy to make you think that he's approving of you. Don't get confused. Just because he's got mercy does not mean he's approving of you. You've got to seek him out to see, Lord, am I pleasing you? Lord, I'm completely dependent on you. I can't do anything unless you do it first. Unless I see you doing it, then I can't do it. So I need you to approve of me. I need you, Lord. Romans chapter 9, verse 22, it says this. What if God, choosing to show his wrath, And to make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath. (laughs) Bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for his glory? This is not a mercy to enable sin, but it's designed that in the end it's going to show his glory because he's proven just. You and I have both been incredible recipients of God's mercy. If you're here today and you are actually pursuing the Lord with all of your heart, you should be critically aware that He is a holy God and it takes a lot of His mercy for us to continue to come to Him. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord, let me encourage you, there has been so much mercy poured out to you already. The fact that any of us are still alive and you're able to walk in this door and make decisions that you make, that is God's mercy upon you and make no, have no second thoughts about that. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known? God bearing with us with mercy and patience. The end result is that he will get glory. Lord, we just, I deserve, I, I can't tell you how many times I've deserved death. 
And yet here I am, walking by his grace and in his grace that teaches me to say no to ungodliness. The last uh, Bible personality that I want to talk about is King Solomon. Let's turn back to 1 Kings chapter 2. We're reading from the prophets, but obviously Solomon wrote much of the writings. So he's going to be my example from the writings. 1 Kings chapter 2. You were familiar with Solomon's story, so I will not take much time on this. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 2. This is David to his son Solomon. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said, so be strong. Show yourself a man and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements, as it is written in the law of Moses, so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. And the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. Even in God's promise to David, there's an if-then statement. If you walk in the ways of the Lord, then you will have someone on the throne for the rest, for all of eternity. If, then. We know that in chapter 3, the Lord says, uh, Solomon goes before the Lord and offers a thousand sacrifices to the Lord. A thousand The Lord sees that in his pleasing and said, Solomon, you can ask for anything you want. What does Solomon ask for? Wisdom. God grants him so much wisdom that there's never been a man like him from the beginning of time, nor will there ever be a man like him again as far as the pure wisdom that he had. You can read through the rest of Kings and you can see. Um, The Queen of Sheba. All these different, it says that every king on the earth wanted to have an audience with him. You know, he could sit there and talk about anything. He could talk about plant life. He could talk about agriculture. He could talk about animals. He could talk, he could talk about any subject that you wanted to, and they would come and pay him great sums of money to listen to him. Now look in verse, 1 Kings chapter 11, starting in verse 1. 1 Kings 11. You get a man who is more wise than any any human being has ever been. He wrote Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song. Back in my day, in my Bible, it's called Song of Solomon. Now it's Song of Songs, right? The Song of Solomon. Incredible. Look in chapter 11, verse 1. 1 Kings 11, 1. It says, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. It's hard for me to sometimes remember that he was the wisest person that ever lived. I know that that is, the, that is what he is known for because I think of this as well. For someone so wise... He missed the most basic of instructions that the Lord had given him. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. Verse 3, he had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubine, and his his wives led him astray. 
As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. First of all, is that not exactly what the word warned him against? If you do this, your heart will be turned away. He did this, and his heart was turned away. Verse 9. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. We didn't have time to look at that, but in chapter 3 and in chapter 9, God appears to him. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you've not kept my covenant and my decree, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. In the midst of God tearing the kingdom away from Solomon because of his abject disobedience, God is still being merciful and honoring his own word to King David. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. As we're reading these examples of people, and I could have added more. That's not us talking about Samson or, or, or many, many of, the, of the kings of Israel. Or there's a lot of examples that we could use further than what I've used, but I think we get the topic. We get an understanding of the whole topic here. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Matthew seven twenty one. Are you there? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. You mean you can have an anointing? You can have a calling? You can have giftings? And God can eventually at one point in your life say, hey, I never knew you. When he gives the gift, I I can't always understand this fully. There was a healing evangelist in the 50s and 60s. A.A. Allen would lay hands on people and they would get miraculously healed. FBI would come out and try to research what he was doing because they thought he was a hoax. This was before you could put an earpiece in your ear and they thought he was feeding information. This is back in the 50s. And people with cancer would be cured. Incredible. And he would be so amped up after a meeting where God would do all these things, he had started to drink just to kind of help him calm down a little bit. And soon he was walking out on stage completely drunk. At the start of the meeting, he became completely addicted, completely enthralled in this, and yet would go out. And like Samson, the Spirit of the Lord would fall upon him and people would be healed. What if God choosing to show his mercy? What he's trying to do with us is getting glory. Just because we can see his mercy doesn't mean he approves of everything that we're doing. We are supposed to weigh our actions before the Lord. If you get to a point in your life where you do not receive correction the way that you're supposed to, If someone brings a correction, 
someone tells you something that you don't like about yourself, if you are constantly in the habit of ignoring what someone says to you, you are in danger of separating yourself from the truth. You, you don't have to like that statement. You don't have to agree with me on that statement. But those who actually seek the correction of the Lord, you know what? You know who He corrects? He corrects those He views as sons. If the Lord is not correcting you, if you've gone through weeks and weeks and months and God hasn't spoken to you about something that needs to be refined, I can assure you, you and I both have things that need to be refined in His kingdom. If you are not listening to Him, perhaps it's because you've turned your ear, you've turned a deaf ear to what God is trying to tell you. Because it is a whole lot more difficult to hear the need for correction and do it than it is to just start ignoring it. Well, they don't understand. They don't really know me. Who is he to tell me what I'm supposed to do? Okay. Problem is, is that shows your heart towards God much more than it impacts us as a pastoral staff or leadership team. Do you know in the announcement that we made earlier today? Do you know that each of us is down to a man? Everyone in the leadership team have wept bitterly over that? Do you know that we've all lost sleep over it this week? I'm dreaming about it. I, I can't get away from it. Everywhere I turn, if I sit down for a few minutes, my mind wanders to that, and I feel the heaviness of it. I don't say that for your sympathy. I'm saying it's because of all those things that we feel deeply that we understand that we must do it right. Can't let our compassion, we cannot become more compassionate than God is. We cannot decide that His ways are just a little bit too harsh, just a little bit too archaic. We know better than you do, Lord. No, all your ways are righteous. All your ways are just, mighty God. Can anyone stand... Turn to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14. So how do we do this? We see many people who have gone before us and failed. Pastor Eric did a message a few weeks ago on a Wednesday night, and the statistics are that only 10% of ministers who start out in ministry retire in ministry. They don't make it to retirement age. Only one out of ten. You know why? Because this is not for the faint of heart. This is not a cakewalk, what we do here. But we have a righteous standard that we are all required to live up to. Exodus chapter 14 and verse 13, it says this. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Everybody say, don't be afraid. afraid. Stand firm. Everybody say, "Stand stand firm. And you will see the deliverance of the Lord. Everybody say, see the deliverance. This is still the same process that we've got to go through today. Don't be afraid. Don't don't be afraid. Hey, I've got all these things that seem to be overwhelming. Don't be afraid. You've got to learn how to stand firm. Because if you don't stand firm, you're not going to see the deliverance part. Um, Little kids get happy feet, right? Stand still. They, they, the more you tell them to stand still, the more antsy some of them get. That was me as a kid. 
okay. Be still. Okay. Bible says stand firm. What we cannot afford to be as a body of believers is anything but firm in our stance with the Lord. We can't have the wiggles. We can't have happy feet. If the Lord has told you to stand somewhere, then by God, stand there. Don't be like Saul and said, well, I saw all these things going along and you people didn't help me out like you were supposed to. You were late in helping me, so I just went and did this. I thought it best to do this. If you are right now, as we're, as we're talking, if you are thinking of things that you've really said that and you've actually done them just because you thought it was best, you never brought it before the Lord, you just thought it best, let me encourage you. You need to start standing firm. You need to repent from that, make restitution or reconciliation on that, and then stand firm in what the Lord has said. Turn to Second Chronicles chapter 20. Judah used this the other day. I used this a few weeks ago. It is just such a powerful passage. Second Chronicles chapter 20. We're going to touch base on 12 because that's, that was, I just like it. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will be able to see what God is doing. Look down in verse 17. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions. Stand firm and see the deliverance the Lord would give you. Is this ringing a bell here a little bit? Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go to face them tomorrow. This is the same instructions that the Lord gave to Moses and the children of Israel in Exodus. Turn to Psalm chapter 33. Psalm 33. Start in verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. Folks, that's all you need. He spoke and it came to be. The same God that starts out in Genesis 1 and says, Let there be light. And there was light. There wasn't a sun for another three days. Or another... It wasn't on that day that the sun came about. He spoke. He doesn't need the sun for light. He just spoke it and it happened. You think you need resources. You just need God to speak into you. That's the resource that you need. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the people. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. Everybody say, stand firm. firm. I'm going to read it again. And when we get to that part, everyone say those two words with me. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of His heart through all generations. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. <clears throat> Starting in verse 54. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. It says this. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality... Then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? 
Listen to this next phrase. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Okay, y'all got to help me out. We're doing a stand firm thing here, right? So we're going to read it again. And when we get to stand firm, this is your part to say stand firm. It's all right. Here we go. 58. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Nothing. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. You know what you can tell sometime in retrospect is whether you've given yourself fully to something or not. When we have to make announcements like we did today, you know what we know in retrospect? That a life was not fully given to the Lord. Pastor, that's so harsh. It's just truth. Are we really giving ourselves fully to the work of the Lord? Because every time you hold something back, you're just giving the enemy a foothold to get in and tear you apart. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 21, 2 Corinthians 1, 21. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. It's okay, I caught you off guard. Still reading too fast for you. I got you. We had a lot of people in prison this morning waking up early. I got you. Amen. Here we go. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Now that we lorded, not that we lorded over your faith. Get ready. But we work with you for your joy. Because it is by faith you stand firm. We are supposed to stand firm in the Lord. Do not let anything move you. Do not let anything sway you. When we see the destruction of of people that we love, you know what it should cause us to do? It should cause us to have a very, very sober heart and a desire that cries out to the Lord, Lord, I do not want to be that. Lord, search me. Would you test me? Would you see if there be any wicked way in me? Lord, have I given myself fully to you? Because you know what? I'm going to stand firm. You're going to allow me to stand firm. I don't have to guess whether it's your desire that I stand firm. What I have to inquire about is whether I am willing to do what you require of me. Because if I do that, I can stand firm. I am absolutely able to stand firm because that's what your word says. You've put your spirit in my heart. You've given me your spirit as a deposit guaranteeing. Everybody say guaranteeing. Guaranteeing. It's guaranteed what is to come. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. There's probably going to be a stand firm comment in here, so you be with me. Probably. I'm just giving you a little hint here, people. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
I'm going to read that part again. It has no stand for a minute. I just want you to catch this. Whatever happens, economy fails, you get sick, things are difficult, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is our standard. We have to live up to the standard regardless of our own weaknesses, in spite of our own failures. We must live a life that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. And because His Spirit is in us, we can. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, I'll look you there, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggles you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Turn over to chapter 3. Start in verse 17. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who, have, who live according to the pattern we gave you. By the way, the end of this passage is chapter 4, verse 1, which I think should be at the end of chapter 3. Because this is going to tell you how to stand firm. It just tells you that at the end. Okay? So starting in verse 17, join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we give. There are men and women who live according to the right pattern. And you are to take note. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many, live, uh, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Many people do. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. They actually take glory in the things that they should be ashamed of. I know people just like that. I know men who are incredibly... Uh, unfaithful to their wives and they flaunt it. I know people who are thieves and steal from their workplaces and like to declare it to you. How arrogant. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Chapter 4, verse 1. Be ready with me. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. Close. I like you people. That is how you should and the Lord, dear friends. What is the that? If it's chapter 4, verse 1, what is the that? It's what we just read at the end of chapter 3. Turn to Acts chapter 5 as we prepare to close here. Acts chapter 5. <clears throat> Pastor Matt referenced this. This is Ananias and Sapphira. They lied to the Holy Spirit. They did not get three, four, five, ten times. They lied to the Holy Spirit, and God required their lives in that moment. 
lest we think that we can keep getting away and God's mercy will always be there to comfort us when we sin. But look what happened as a result. Verse 10. At that moment, she fell dead at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Pastor Eric likes to joke around. This is the first youth group activity. The young men came and had to bury Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the Lord. Look at verse 11. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. I'm sure it did. If you walked into the church and you had heard that somebody came in and gave an offering, but they lied about how much they gave and dropped there, dead there on the spot, <laughs> you're going to do one of two things. You're going to make sure that you get right before you come in the door, or you're going to tuck tail and run. But either way, there was great fear. And look what happened as a, as a result. The apostles performed many miracle, miraculous signs and wonders among the people. All the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Yeah, that's the group of people that if you don't do what's right, you might drop dead with them. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. You know what we believe is going to happen to our church because we're standing with righteousness? We believe that the Lord will add to our number. We believe that there are going to be miracles and different signs and wonders in our services and in our homes. You know why? Because we're standing with Him. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed. You don't have Peter's shadow healing people unless you have Ananias and Sapphira. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. What happens when we all look at the seriousness of an issue and say, you know what, I'm not going to allow a brother falling to derail me. I'm not going to allow fear to overtake me. I'm, gonna stand, I'm not going to be afraid. I'm going to stand firm, and I'm going to see God's deliverance in my life. The things that have been haunting me, the things that have been an example of God's mercy, but I thought it was His approval, I now realize I cannot allow that to be in my life. I must rid myself of these unholy practices because I serve a holy, holy, holy God. And this is all that He accepts. Turn to Revelation chapter 3. Because we want all, we want miraculous signs and wonders to be around us. We want to stand firm and see God's deliverance. Revelation chapter 3. And we're going to start in verse 19. Before this, you get instructions to the church at Laodicea that they were lukewarm. They were supposed to be either hot or cold. They were saying to themselves, I'm rich, I have need of nothing. And they were poor and wretched. In verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. In my Bible, these are red letters, meaning that Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, has said them, and they were recorded by the Apostle John. Those whom I love, I rebuke. I'm sorry if you've grown up in a church that thought rebuke was just a nasty word that was used in the Old Testament somewhere. This is what the Word of God does for us. And if people actually care about you, you should be rebuked when it's deserving. 
Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him. Wait, what? Wait, wait, what did you just say, Lord? If he's standing at the door knocking and you hear him and you let him in, he will come in and eat with him. A sign of a restoration in relationship. A sign of fellowship with the one who created us. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you stand to your feet, please?